please take up your copy of Scripture and turn back to that portion that we read, Jeremiah and 32. I would like to begin by asking you a question, and it is this. Have you ever, ever found yourself envying another man or woman of God? If only I could be like him or her. If only I could do what they did. And sometimes we can be, this is a particular curse for preachers. If only I could be like that preacher. If only I could preach sermons like him. If only I had the capacity of him or whatever it is. It's very easy, isn't it, to look at others and think that there's something inherently in them that we don't have. But I have a news headline this evening. And we're going to see this displayed in Jeremiah. I want to break some news to you, because this news was broken to me this week. There are no great men or women. There are none. There are none. There are no men and women who of themselves are great. There are only men and women who are made strong in faith. And we are reformed Christians, most of us, I believe. But we, we are people that believe that grace, faith, sorry, faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, verse 8. So, if, so when you, immediately you've got to say, well, if this person's got faith, where did faith come from? And then... As a gift, as an instrument, faith is an instrument we have to exercise, we have to live by faith, we have to choose to view things by faith and not by sight. You can choose to leave your faith dormant in a situation and be governed by your own understanding. This is, this is what it is to trust in the Lord and, and not lean on your own understanding. But, but what do these men and women who do great things have that we don't? Or what is it that they've experienced? Well, they have been strengthened in faith. Not only is the gift, not even is faith a gift, but the degree of faith is God's work. And so there are no great men and women. This is what Paul says in Romans. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. It makes no sense to envy other Christians because they are living with the measure of faith that they have been assigned. It's very important that we take that to heart. He goes on, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If, if prophecy, if speaking the word of God in proportion to our faith, to our understanding of that word, is service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. And this realism, because what we're calling for tonight is a realism, we're going to see this in Jeremiah, this realism is seen in every major character of the scriptures. I love the honesty of the Bible, it's so refreshing, don't you? Because if you even look at the great men and women of faith, you see that one minute you're reading great exploits done in faith, and then your next minute you're seeing awful behaviour done in unbelief. I mean, just, just think of Abraham. There we see him in Genesis 12. 
God appears to him and says, leave your homeland, forsake your idols and go to a land which I'm going to show you. And we just see Abraham going, all right then. He packs up everything, he takes everything he has, he forsakes everything that he had and he goes, not knowing where he's going. And we're like, wow, that's such amazing conviction. And then not too long later, you see him when heading to Egypt, lying to Pharaoh about Sarai being his wife. Or you see Moses, they've worshipped the golden calf. And there you see immediately Moses interceding and he even prays, blot me out. Blot me out. What tremendous love for God, love for the people. Blot me out and spare them. And then later on, so angry was he with those same people that he didn't obey God's command and struck the rock twice when God made no such command. Or David, so has such a humble confidence in his God. Who is this Philistine to defy the armies of God and defy the living God? And he goes in a humble confidence. That wasn't pride, it was a humble confidence. God who saved me from the lion will also save me from this Philistine. And then towards the end of his life, after all his experiences of God's faithfulness and dealings, he takes a census to count how many people are in his kingdom. And God was very angry with him because he was seeking to look at this kingdom at almost a Nebuchadnezzar moment. Look at this kingdom which I have built. When you look at that great hall of fame in Hebrews 11, there's a reason it keeps saying, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Not by wisdom, not by strength, not by experience. To make the point abundantly clear that everything they did was not inherent to themselves. Everything they did was done by God in them. And it concludes in Hebrews 12 that the Lord Jesus is the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. Now, why have I kind of uh, exhorted you with these thoughts? Because... I want you to see, in this chapter, these two realities literally side by side. In verses 1 to 15, you see a man act in complete confidence, in faith. I knew it was the word of God. I knew God was in this. And he calls all the witnesses, oh, fetch an earthen vessel uh, so that these these papers will last for a long time because houses uh, and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again. It's as if he has no doubt. He steps out in total conviction that he's in the will of God and God has called him to this. And then... No sooner has he done it, verse 16, and delivered the deed to Barak, suddenly he feels the need to pray. And so we basically have two points this evening. Firstly, man's cry, and secondly, God's word. Firstly, man's cry. And under this first heading, I want you to see a man's confidence. Jeremiah has done everything asked of him. And, and that is the essence of true faith. It, it, he, he didn't do it because he felt good about it. In fact, there may have been the absence of any positive feelings. He knew it was the will of God. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. And yet, no sooner has he stepped out in faith that he feels the need to pray. And why does he pray? 
Well, it's been said by a brother in this pulpit, I believe Jeff Thomas, and I've, I, I, this, this line I always mention because it's just for, it will forever stick with me as a summary of prayer. Prayer is impotence taking hold of omnipotence. Beloved, you can be sure that he is praying and he is going to God because unbelief is beginning to rise within as he stepped out and put everything on the line and made himself vulnerable, suddenly it is at that very moment that he feels most fearful. Because faith, though it is a gift, needs continual strengthening. Do you realise that? Unless faith be strengthened moment by moment and hour by hour, faith will atrophy. We are leaky vessels. Paul said to Timothy, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 6, I remind you, stir up the gift of God which is in you. And faith is a gift of God. It has to be stirred up. It has to be fanned into a flame. Because what you have is the flesh, the world, and the devil constantly putting the fire extinguisher on faith. And as he stepped out and, and delivered the deeds, all of a sudden he's like, ah, what am I doing? And unbelief is beginning to rise. And we know that he was struggling with doubts because he goes on in verses 24 to say, look, Babylon are sieging the city, and twelve twenty-five. yet you have said to me, O Lord, buy the field for money. Maybe you can look back to a time when you were quite bold, or you had a conviction. And yet, is it not so often true that things that in the past you were so bold and convicted about, you have sometimes doubted in subsequent years? Yesterday's manner is rotten. It will not feed you today. I remember a little while back, actually, just archiving some old sermons of mine. And I came across an old recording of one of my early sermons. And I listened to it. And I found myself going, I, I haven't preached like that in a long time. What's happened? There was a conviction that I had, that I could hear in myself, that I'd lost. And it drove home to me the fact that faith has to be continually stirred up and strengthened. I can't just assume that the things were once, that were once alive and clear to me will continually uh, be clear to me. And Jeremiah knows this. And so he goes to God and he says, Oh, Lord God, here in that side, this, a man who is seeking assurance. And he does the right thing. He, in his prayer, he rehearses what he knows to be true about God. He, it's almost like he answers his own question and his own doubts in what he says. And that's what we have to do in prayer. You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Therefore, there is nothing too hard for you. He considers the power of God, the nature of God, the works of God, as he wrestles with his own doubts and questions. And so in this man's Cry is a confidence. He is saying, I know, I know intellectually, I know in theory, I know that what you've asked me to do, you're able to fulfill. And he's seeking to bring to bear the attributes of God to his situation. The situation may seem impossible, the obstacles huge. And yet God calls me and calls Jeremiah here to, be uh, to, to, to believe against hope. So this isn't a prayer of complete unbelief. This is a prayer of, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I know that you can do this. And that's what we have to do, beloved. When you are confronted with situations that you feel 
are outside of your ability or power or understanding to see the solutions to. The first thing you must do is do what Jeremiah does. Go to God for strengthening your faith and rehearse to yourself. What, do what Jeremiah does. Oh Lord, nothing is too hard for you. If you spoke all things into existence in six days, this situation that I'm wrestling with is not too difficult for you. And yet, though he had confidence, he has weakness. Because as I was saying, if prayer is a sense of impotence calling upon omnipotence, because if we never felt need, we wouldn't pray. Jeremiah is praying because he feels need. And his need is, I need deeper assurance, deeper conviction that I haven't acted foolishly, that what I'm doing is what you would have me do. And uh, this weakness is illustrated, I think, by Peter perfectly. Peter's like the perfect example of what you see in Jeremiah here. One minute he's acting in tremendous boldness. In Matthew 14, Jesus comes to them walking on the water, doesn't he? And what does, what does Peter say? He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gone out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. That's Jeremiah verses 1 to 15. Total assurance, total conviction, total confidence. But what happened next? When he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I think what you have in Jeremiah then in verse 16 onwards is a man who is beginning to sink. And, and so often it can be like that. We obey God and then all of a sudden it is having obeyed that the doubts begin to rise. I remember once witnessing the conversion of an unbeliever. And I remember thinking for a while immediately after that God could save anyone. And actually coming to church with a conviction that when God speaks people are going to get converted. And then all of a sudden, over time, I can now find myself in a place where I wonder, will anyone ever be saved? How do you explain those two? Is what we're saying is, well, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And sometimes unbelief begins to rise and swallow up the conviction that you once had. Lord, I know you can, but all I see is death and decay. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, I know you can. I know it's, nothing is too hard for you. Look at the siege mounts. And so he makes a confession. See, man's confession He's, in fact, what's interesting is Jeremiah's doubts are in part the result of his belief. Let me explain what I mean by that. In verses 18 through to verse 24, Jeremiah rehearses what he knows to be true of God. You see that in verses 18 to 19. He sees that he's a mighty God who must, by the very nature of his holy character, give to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. saying, God, the reason I'm doubting is actually because I know the kind of God you are, but I also know the people that you have promised to bless. Verse 23, they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. He's saying, I know that you are a holy God who can by no means clear the guilty and I know that my people are sinful from their head to the toe. In other words, I have such a conviction about my people and about you that I cannot even possibly see how you could be resolved to bless them. Do you see, do you see, that, do you see that in the text? 
Jeremiah's doubt actually arises from his conviction about the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of his people's sin. In fact, he's saying, look, Lord, the siege mounds. He's saying, having known what I've known of you, God, and known what I've known of my nation. I mean, he's been preaching to them for years and had no response. He's saying, what I'm seeing is what I would expect to see. You're absolutely punishing them and smashing them. And yet, look, you have said, by field. At the heart, then, is a man who is questioning, I do not see how a God like you could bless a people like them. How could a God who is pure give blessing to such an idolatrous people? Here is a man who's trying to reconcile the righteous judgment of God with the gracious promises of mercy. I don't doubt your power, verse 17. I don't doubt your power. I just don't see how you can bless them and be the God that you are. Can we not relate to this? Is that not one of the first things we experience when we come under conviction of sin? How can we reconcile the inscrutable justice of God with the promises of mercy and of grace? And of course, Jeremiah didn't live with Calvary clarity, did he? Jeremiah didn't live with, behold the Lamb of God, see uh, love and justice kiss, see how God can be holy and just and loving and merciful. He didn't have that clarity that you and I have. And Jeremiah, if you like, had such clear views of his judgment, but you could say murky views of his grace. He couldn't sing with us by conviction, grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty word in love. Some of us, including your pastor from time to time, we struggle with assurance, don't we? Because our sin is real to us. We feel it, we see it. We're told about it by our loved ones. And just like the sin of Israel was real to him, he saw it, he experienced it, he'd been thrown into jail because of it. And sometimes it can be easier to believe that God is austere, cold, clinical and an impersonal judge rather than a God who waits to be gracious. Often our lack of assurance flows from viewing God only as a judge and not as a saviour. And that is what Jeremiah is expressing today. We may also have the same doubts in the way we view our generation today. Oh, like Jeremiah, we would say, oh, the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation. We know that you can save souls. I know that you can save my son or my brother or that neighbor. I know that you can. You can do all things. But really and truly, like Jeremiah, we look at the perversity and the vileness and the hardness of our culture. And we say, They're under, we're under judgment and I cannot see, I just cannot see how a holy God could, could even be resolved to turn this around. But beloved, spiritually we have it back to front. Scripturally we have it back to front. Without wanting to undermine the wrath of God as a legitimate truth, it is. But theologians have called God's wrath his strange work. What they are saying there is 
that it, he does not delight in being wrathful. He is wrathful when his nature calls for it, but he would much rather be gracious and merciful. A couple of text references. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Look at this lovely text. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed all those who wait for him. He waits to be gracious. That's what God wants above all, to be gracious to his people. Or Micah 7, verse 18 and 19. Precious truths. Who is, or verse 18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever. Here it is. Because... He delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. So actually, we should be looking at our culture, and yes, in one sense it's right, like Jeremiah, we can say, yeah, it it, it makes sense to see the evidence of God's judgment. I see it all around me, and yet what we should be persuaded of is that God would rather be merciful. And he has his holy and just reasons why sometimes there are times where you estrange mercy. But our conviction should be, God wants to be gracious. God wants to bless. Or we express this unbelief in a different way. Perhaps not just how we view the present situation. How we view our own lives. We have a particular need or a particular blessing. And uh, we say, well again, I know Lord that you can do all things. But what we struggle to believe is, is, how could he possibly bring this about in my life? I mean, I can see why God would do it in his life or her life, but my life. I mean, I know what I am. I know what I've done. Oh, the chastisements. Oh, I need those. I need the chastisements because I'm a wretched sinner. Oh, how I deserve them. But the blessings. We sometimes believe that God enjoys and finds it easier to use the whip than to bless. But as a father, I can tell you I would much rather bless my children than chastise them. I don't need persuading to to, to bless my children. In fact, I need... I need to feel a divine necessity, not divine, an absolute necessity to chastise them. So that was man's cry. Secondly and lastly, see God's word. See God's word. See his affirmative answer in verse 26 to 27. (laughs) He just tells Jeremiah what he's already said. (laughs) Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? This is why it's so important, retracing our steps to my previous point, to rehearse in prayer what you know to be true. Because what happens in prayer, prayer is not one way, prayer is not two way. In prayer we bring our unbelief, but we also bring what we know is true, and God takes what we know is true and applies it to our hearts. What God is doing here is sealing to him what he intellectually knew to be true, but he's now impressing upon it on him. He's writing on his heart and saying, you've answered your own question, Jeremiah. You've answered your own question. Is there anything too hard for me? 
And it's one thing to know that intellectually. It's another thing to know that in the depths of your soul. You are right, Jeremiah. I am the God of all flesh. I am great in power. This is who I am. You have said to me, you've already said, you recognize it is my hand that has brought the judgments. Well, Jeremiah, if you believe that, my hand, that same hand is more than capable of bringing the blessings. In fact, I would be most pleased to bring the blessings. Yes, what you see, Jeremiah, is real. I am judging them, verse 28 to 33. I have seen that they've done evil only from their youth, verse 30. I have brought these calamities. But here's the point, Jeremiah. Just as it is easy for me to bring the judgments, it is easy for me to bring the blessings. So we should be looking at our culture and saying, God is doing this, Romans 1. And actually, it's quite terrifying what God is doing. But that same God who can do that is the same God who can also save and, and, and bless. And so then he gives, he reaffirms these gracious promises. And you see that, don't you, in verse, um, from verse 37 to the end. And count how many I wills. Behold, I will gather them. I will bring them back. I will cause them to dwell safely I will be their God. I will give them one heart. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. He is emphasizing to Jeremiah the same God who punishes and judges is the same God who saves and restores. You are right. Humanly, it is impossible. But in my infinite wisdom, I can do this. He is assuring Jeremiah, your investment is well spent. Your shekels are well spent. It's not too hard for me, and I am going to be good to what I have promised. You've recognised, Jeremiah, that I have done what I have spoken. Well, Jeremiah, why do you believe I can do what I have spoken concerning judgment, but I can't do what I have spoken concerning grace? Salvation is God's work. Your investment then was not in vain, Jeremiah. Now, how does this impact our view of this church, our hope for this church? Because the same God who judges is the same God who blesses. I am not into what's called five-year plans. I remember being at a church once, the church I met my wife in, and Pastor say, right, here's our five-year plan. We will have this many baptisms, this many members, um, you know, and uh, we're going to do this building project. And No, we must bow before the sovereignty of God in all things. But what I want to say to you is, why would God say go into all the earth and make disciples if he didn't plan to make disciples? Why would God say, preach the gospel, compel them to come in, go into the byways and the highways if he didn't want people to come in? Why should this baptism pool not be open every week? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why are we so able to recognise the hand of judgment but not to anticipate or believe in the hand of blessing? I ask myself this same question (laughs) because I see myself in... Jeremiah, I have no problem believing my God is a God who judges. Because like Jeremiah, that is all I see around me. 
Death and decay all around I see. But if God has done this, God can also change this. One of the lovely little things I learned this week, and this is one of the reasons when you learn that the lists of names are very important, was a little detail in Ezra. In Ezra chapter 2 and verse uh, 23, there's a group of men that are mentioned coming back to the land. Look at the name. The men of Anathoth. The men of Anathoth. Look back at Jeremiah, chapter 32, verse 7. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth. God did bring fulfilment to his word. There was a moment when the deeds that Jeremiah signed were taken out of the earthen vessel. And Jeremiah's faith was seen to be a good investment. Friends, the wisest thing for us to do is to live our lives in light of the word of God, not in light of our feelings about the word of God. That was the wisest 17 shekels spent on that day. Babylon fell and was destroyed. God's kingdom endured then, endures now, and will endure forever. We need to believe that God blesses in the midst of judgment. We need to believe that if we are his people, it is both possible for God to have his hand heavy on the nations, but also to be blessing his people at the same time. God is able to do both things at one time. And what you invest in the kingdom of God, like Jeremiah's investment, will not be lost. And I would urge you then this evening, keep giving your time, your energies, your prayers and your resources for the work of the gospel. Behold, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Who knows what God may yet do? A brother just texted me this morning, this afternoon, to say he visited the church this morning. He said, I've never seen so many people in a church like that. But there wasn't always people that many in that particular church. God has worked. Are we expectant? I actually feel challenged by this, that we should have an expectancy about us. Because God delights to show mercy. We should actually, if we were aligned with the word of God and not with our feelings and not be sight, we should be saying, when are we going to see demonstrations of mercy and of grace? Not, when are we going to see judgment? I mean, so often when I, I turn on the news and I see things, my immediate reaction is, oh, God's going to smash our country at some point. That's, that's my expectancy. But from this chapter I read that God will do anything to save and call his people to himself. And it's a number that no man can number from every nation or tribe or, son, or, or, tribe or tongue. And that phrase, go and make disciples of all nations, can be translated, disciple the nations. There's an element of expectancy here. We should expect God to glorify himself in being merciful 
to those who deserve no mercy. This had nothing to do with the people, did it? He is saying, I'm going to accomplish what is necessary to bless them. He does it all by his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that in Jeremiah we get to see belief and unbelief coexisting. This encourages us because we feel exactly the same. We don't often feel what we say. We so often don't do what we say. We come to church and say we believe in a sovereign God who can do all things, and yet Monday morning we're worrying. Oh Lord, help teach us to pray like Jeremiah with that humble cry, that honesty, that expresses our confidence, but also expresses our questions and our doubts. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would bring assurance to each of us in our particular lives and situations, that we would learn, O oh Lord, to believe that, yes, there is nothing too hard for you, that you are able to do all that you have said in faithfulness to your word. In Jesus' name we pray.